Hey, it's Andy. Welcome or welcome back to the Brownsbridge Church podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to download the Brownsbridge Church app where you can access all of our recent message content as well as find out more information about Brownsbridge Church. And the app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. We've all had embarrassing moments, and if our church wasn't quite so large, and if there were so many of you out there that I can't see, I thought maybe we could just start by turning to a complete stranger and sharing one of your most embarrassing moments. Because, and see, you laugh, and it's so interesting because in the moment, you don't laugh, right? But then you think back on that most embarrassing moment or one of those most embarrassing moments, and you laugh. In fact, there's some of our favorite stories when people start talking about their embarrassing moment, you're like, oh yeah, and then everybody ups the other person. But at the same time, there are some embarrassing moments that aren't funny and they'll never be funny and they make your stomach hurt to talk about. And um, Sandra's not here today. Uh, She's watching. Um, And I'm not gonna share it, sweetheart. But anyway, she has like this great embarrassing moment story that is She's just like, Mm-mm. I begged and I pleaded. She's like, Mm-mm. And, and when you see her, don't say, tell her she's not gonna tell you. But the, the point is, we all have those moments that it's just, it, it, just the thought of it, you know, you almost wanna freeze up. It was just so embarrassing. Now, um, a really good pastor or speaker at this point in the message would say, so let me tell you about one of mine, but I'm neither that good nor that secure. So I'm not gonna tell you one of mine. But see, you thought that's where it's going because a really good communicator would sort of set it up, most embarrassing moment, then tell one of his or her own, but I'm not. Instead, I wanna tell you about the most embarrassing moment for two of Jesus' apostles. Um, and, and when it happened, they weren't embarrassed in the moment, but they were embarrassed in the moments that followed. And I think one of them in particular was embarrassed for the rest of, in fact, both of them were probably embarrassed for the rest of their life. It's just that one lived a lot longer than the other. And I think James and John, they were brothers and they're the ones that had this most embarrassing moment. I think, I'm just making this part up, that they probably begged Matthew and, and John probably begged Mark when they wrote their gospels. Hey, <clears throat> don't, you don't have to include that. Just, you don't have to tell that story, but Matthew and Mark both included this most embarrassing moment in spite of the fact that James and John were embarrassed by what they did and what they said that we'll get to in just a minute. And I'm glad that Matthew and Mark included this in the account of the life of Jesus because it sets us up for what I think, and I hope you'll stick around for this, what I think is probably the most inspiring, catalytic, clarifying statement that ever came from the lips of Jesus a statement that ended up turning their, his apostles' entire value system upside down and a statement that if the modern church would take it to heart, if the modern church, if we would just take it to heart, just want this one statement by Jesus for just three months or six months, so much would change in our communities and so much would change in our families. If Christian fathers and husbands and mothers and wives would just take this business owners and people in the marketplace, if just for a few months we would take this one statement to heart, it literally would change so much. It would change in some way the temperature of, of our communities. And before I point my finger too much at you, honestly, if people who do what I do, if pastors would allow this to inform their behavior and inform their responses and inform their reactions and and inform the way that they pastor their churches. So, so much would be different. In fact, real quick, if you're not a Christian, I really, really hope you'll stick with this through this message. If you're not a Christian, honestly, it's the church's failure to embrace this one statement 
that may explain why you're not a Christian or, or it may explain why you're not a Christian anymore, why you left the faith. Because honestly, um, this statement by Jesus actually reflects um, a value. It reflects something that if you're not a Christian, you should hold us accountable to. But in some ways, us Christians oftentimes don't hold ourselves accountable to this incredible statement. If this, and I'm gonna give it to you, I promise. If this statement characterized Jesus' people the way it characterized Jesus, honestly, our communities, the world, would be a different place. Today, if you've been tracking along with us, we're wrapping up this four-part series entitled Icon, The Empowering Invitation of the Cross. And as you know, before you tuned in or before you got here, the cross is the icon for Christianity. Um, And for many Christians, it simply represents a way of believing. But as we've said throughout this series, in the first century, and hopefully for some of us in the 21st century, it actually reflects or uh, is a way of living. It's to reflect or inform a lifestyle. Um, In the first century, the reason it was easy for them to, or easier for them to get this is they'd actually seen a cross used. They knew that it was an invitation to an alternative way of life, alternative, but not intuitive. Um, to those on the outside, this way of life looks foolish. It looks crazy. As we said last time, it even looks a little bit lazy, but in the first century, they embraced it anyway. And it's why we're here today. But the challenge of the invitation of the cross, it's so countercultural. Worse than that, it's so counter-natural. It runs against the grain of my life, of my selfishness, of my self-centeredness, of what I want for me the way I naturally think. But as we said as well in this series, it's not just an, an invitation to live a different kind of life. It's an empowering invitation. As we said in part two, the invitation of the cross, if you say yes, if I say yes, sets us up to experience and demonstrate the power of God through our lives. Not supernatural, miracle-working power. That would be nice. But even better than that, the kind of power that causes people to stop and say, wait, 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 you forgave him? Wait, wait, you're gonna, you're gonna do that for her after what she did to you? You're gonna actually get, wait, what? I mean, what kind of life, who, who are you? What kind of life are you living? It's the empowering invitation of the cross to set ourselves up in such a way that we experience the power of God because, and this, you should know this if you grew up in church, when you live in sync with the teaching of Jesus, when you live in the direction of the way of the cross, the way of Jesus, you are set up then to experience and manifest or demonstrate the power of God in your life. But simply to pray a prayer, kind of a one and done, doesn't necessarily set you up to experience that or to demonstrate that. The, the invitation of the cross is an invitation to express God's other's first love through us. But because it's so unnatural and because it's so you know, against the grain of culture oftentimes, we're all tempted to decline the invitation because God isn't gonna force himself on us or force us to live this way. It's an invitation. And we're tempted to decline this invitation every single day. Every time there's conflict, every time you don't get your way, every time somebody crosses you, every time somebody pulls out in front of you, every time somebody steals your idea, every time somebody insists on winning the argument. And again, the, the, the challenge, and the reason I wanted to talk about it for several weeks, I'm convinced a lot of Christians don't even know this invitation exists. Because for them, as I said a minute ago, faith is kind of a one and done. You know, when I was a kid, I prayed a prayer and I was baptized and now Jesus is my savior and the cross, well, the cross is, I guess, it's just like a good luck charm. It's it's just an an icon that represents that, that I believe something. Now, back to the real world where we grade ourselves by comparing ourselves. 
But the icon of our faith isn't a checkered flag. It's not a trophy. It's not a sword. You know, it's, it's not a, a gold medal. It's a cross. It's an invitation to live for the approval of one rather than everyone. So as we wrap up this series, I do want to end and land with this, what I consider this most startling, clarifying, catalytic statement by Jesus. That if this ever went from here to here, I would be more changed. I would be more conformed. For you, if it ever went from here to here, for the church in general, for anybody who claims the name of Jesus, if this ever went from here to here, and I say here because if you're a Christian, you read this and you believe Jesus said it and you believe it's true. But if this ever informs our actions and our lifestyle consistently, things change. So here's what happened. Um, this may be new to you. I don't know, even if you grew up in church. So in this part of the story of Jesus, um, he has just finished mission number one. Jesus didn't have one mission. He had two missions. And we celebrate and sing about the second mission, but we overlook the first mission, but we talk about it a lot here. Mission number one for Jesus was to live his life and teach in such a way that people understood what his father was like. He came to reveal um, the father. And so in this part of the story, he's just wrapped that up. Uh, some of you are familiar with what's called sometimes the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's found in John 17. It's this long prayer that John recorded for us. And in this prayer, it's toward the end of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is praying to his heavenly father and he makes this statement. I memorized this verse many years ago in a translation we don't use a lot anymore. He said this, I love this. He said, I glorified, past tense, I have glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. In other words, mission accomplished, which we would read that or hear that and say, wait a minute, you haven't accomplished your mission yet. You're still on planet earth and you're praying to your heavenly father. Your mission was to die for the sins of the world. And Jesus is like, you know, I can do more than one thing at a time, okay? I'm here to reveal the father and I'm done with mission number one. I glorified or I manifested, I revealed, I explained you to people on planet earth. I glorified you on the earth. Having accomplished the work or having accomplished the mission, put a check in the box that you have given me to do. And now in our storyline, he's about to step into the second part of his mission, which was to pay for the sins of the world. This is the part we sing about and celebrate all the time. So as we talked about a little bit last time, so now he's with his disciples and he's moving to Jerusalem. He's not marching on Jerusalem as we talked about. He's marching to it. And his disciples are so excited because they're thinking, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. He's finally going to throw off his rabbinic robe and proclaim himself Messiah and King. And they cannot wait to get to Jerusalem. And they can't wait to get to Jerusalem for all the wrong reasons. They're thinking Old Testament Jericho. Like we're gonna get there and we're gonna take the city. We're gonna conquer the city. We're gonna exploit the city. Our rabbi is gonna be the king and we're his followers. So here's where the story picks up. The text says, and Mark tells us who got his information from Peter, who was there for all of this. They were on their way to Jerusalem. I love this statement. It's very unique in the, in the New Testament. With Jesus leading the way. So you get this picture? There's the 12 of them. And then there's people who just, there's like the general disciples who kind of went everywhere Jesus went. But in this particular case, Jesus is out front and the, it sort of implies that he's walking a little faster than normal and they're, they're having to keep up. Like he can't wait to get to Jerusalem. But you got to picture this. This is right before Passover. So they're not the only ones on the road. There are hundreds, eventually there will be 
thousands and thousands and thousands of pilgrims making their way all the way down from Galilee and the different regions to the city of Jerusalem because it was a big deal to celebrate Passover in the city of Jerusalem. So the roads are crowded. Jesus is out front. They're trying to keep up. And he knows, there's not a mystery to him. He knows when they get to Jerusalem, it's not gonna go well with him. And he knows his disciples are a little too excited. So he turns around and he says, okay, guys, let's take a break. And he pulls them all off the road, far enough away from the crowd where they won't be disturbed. And here's what the text says. He says, he took, Mark says, he took the 12 aside and he told them what was gonna happen to him. He's like, guys, okay, you think this is gonna be like a big party? It's gonna be horrible. I wanna, I want, I wanna kind of set your expectations. And then he goes into all this detail. You should read it for yourself. He says, I'm gonna be arrested. I'm gonna be spit on. I'm gonna be screamed at. I'm gonna be mischaracterized. I'm gonna be lied about. I'm going to be flogged. And then they're gonna kill me. Do we, y'all still wanna go? They cannot hear this. I mean, this isn't the first time he's, he's warned them. And then they get up, they get back on the road. Jesus is leading the charge. And this is when James and John have their most embarrassing moment because they kind of hustle up ahead of the other guys and they come up beside Jesus. And the text says like right then, right after he's finished explaining all this horrible stuff that's about to happen to him, the text says this. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Why, did this, why does the New Testament always tell us whose sons they are? In this case, because there are so many Jameses and so many Johns. And why are there so many Jameses and so many Johns and so many Peters and so many Simons and so many Marys? I'm not gonna tell you, but it's a fascinating thing about the names, okay? We'll talk about this some other time. So then James and John and sort of the readers in the, in the first, second century are like, which James, which John? Oh, the sons of Zebedee. So these are, this is James Zebedee's son and John Zebedee's son, right? Last name. Then James and John, their brother, sons of Zebedee, came to him. Like, as soon as Jesus, read it for yourself, as soon as Jesus finishes telling them all this horrible stuff, they come up beside Jesus. And here's what they say. This is their most embarrassing moment later when all this kind of came together. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Okay, every parent understands this question. You've got it from your kids at some point. Like, daddy, I need you to buy me, you know, just, just, just give me a blanket, yes, and then I'll fill in the gaps, right? This is how kids ask parents for stuff, right? In fact, the Greek text here is really kind of funny. It's a little bit Yoda-ish. Here's, here's the literal Greek, it's kind of, kind of interesting. Um, Jesus, they said, we desire whatever we ask, you would do for us. We desire whatever you ask. In other words, go ahead and give us a yes, and then we're gonna tell you what we want. And then Jesus responds like a good parent responds. <laughs> he says, okay, what do you want me to do for you? Before I say yes, what do you want me to do for you? And they look back to make sure the other guys can't hear. And they say in conspiratorial you know, uh, volume, hey, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Yeah, I mean, you're, okay, we got it. You're number one, but you gotta have a number two and number three. And... I mean, those guys are great, but hey, we were like some of your first guys. Like, remember the very beginning, we didn't have anybody and we were there for you. So when, you, when we get to Jerusalem and you proclaim yourself king, I mean, we'll probably hang back during the spitting and flogging and all that part. But anyway, when that's over with and you're finally the king, you know, we're brothers. We, we wanna be number one and number two. And can you imagine what Jesus is thinking? See, we know the whole story. We, we know what he's about to encounter. They didn't. But he knows, and they're like, I mean, what? 
And so he, this is what he says to them. He says, hey guys, you don't know, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. You, you don't really know what you're, you, <laughs> you, wanna be not, you wanna be that close to me? Then he sort of asked them in this sort of New Testament language, can, can you two drink the cup? Can, can you two face or endure the baptism, with, you know, the baptism that I'm about to undergo, this is kind of symbolic language for I'm about to drink something and do you think you can handle what I'm drinking? Do you really think that you can undergo what I'm about to undergo? In other words, hey guys, do you really think you have what it takes to follow me into all of this? I mean, you wanna be number one and number two, you really think you have what it takes? And here's what they said. Oh yeah, 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 we can, we got this. I mean, bring it on. A week later, a week later, there with the rest of the apostles, Jesus is arrested and they just run away with everybody else. I mean, before any, like there was no battle or anything, their, their lives weren't being threatened. Just as soon as Jesus is arrested, they're out. And I think, I'm just making this part up. I think forever after that, it's like, hey, John, remember that whole thing? Oh yeah, we're with you. We can take it. Then you ran away like the rest of us. I think this was like, just this, the whole, this just had to be their most embarrassing moment, Right? Now, they, this little conversation didn't remain a secret. I mean, long before it was documented in the, by Matthew and Mark, apparently the, us, the other 10 guys found out about it. So here's what happened. When the 10, the other 10, when the other 10 heard about this conversation these two had had privately with Jesus, somehow they found out about it. They became indignant with James and John. Hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Who, you guys think you should be number two and number three? We wanna be number two. And an argument breaks out among Jesus' disciples as they're making their way to Jerusalem. And the argument is about who gets the position, who gets the power, who gets proximity to the king? Who has more position, who has more power, who gets more proximity to the king? And Jesus, I don't know what Jesus is thinking. I'm guessing this is dangerous. I think Jesus must be thinking, I am going on my own volition. I am intentionally going to Jerusalem to die for you, to give my life for you. I'm, I'm going low. I'm embracing, I'm chasing humility. And you guys, after being with me this long, are still scrambling and competing position. You're still trying to get to the top. Pause. And Christians, me included, we've been doing that ever since. I mean, they're with Jesus and they missed the lesson of his entire life. Many of us grew up in church. We know this story. We know the stories. I say, John 11, you're healing of the blind. You know, John, you know, John, excuse me, John 9, healing of the blind. John 11, you know, raising Lazarus. You know, I say, turn to Ephesians 1 and you can think through the book. I mean, we know all this stuff. A lot of us do. We've been in church forever and we still haven't somehow been able to get our minds and hearts around the message of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the way of the cross. We're just like his disciples, except we know the story. We know what he went through. And there's still something in me. And I think a lot of us still kind of competing and positioning and somehow it's all about winning and climbing. And and again, we've talked about, this isn't about don't do your best. This isn't about don't exploit your talent and your resources. This is about why you do it and how you do it and who you do it for. So once again, Jesus is like, Oh, great. All right, guys, 
We're gonna have another little meeting. Everybody off the path, let everybody get ahead of us. They're like, oh, there's thousands of people are getting ahead of us. Jesus is like, this is part of your problem. So they're gonna have another little sit down. So they get way off the road again to where nobody can hear. And then Jesus sets up for this amazing statement. Here's what happens. Jesus called them all together. Sit down, guys. We're gonna go over this one more time. Takes a deep breath. Okay, guys, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, specifically the Romans, you know how those who are regarded as rulers lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them? In other words, guys, you you know how it works in the real world, right? People with the power retain their power and try to get more power and leverage their power for themselves. People with resources hold on to those resources, leverage their resources for more resources so they can have more resources for themselves. Guys, you know how this works? Everything moves from the bottom to the top and there's just a few at the top and they just hang on, hang on, hang on and cling and they make decisions based on what's best for them regardless of the people further down in society. Do you know You know how this works? <laughs> and they're like, of course we do. That's why we wanna be number two and number three. We know exactly how this works. That was the point of our question. That's why we're so mad at those two because they're trying to get further up the food chain than we are. We know how it works. And then four words, this isn't the big statement, but this is, this is a big one. Then four words that are aimed at people like me. I think maybe more at people like me who do what I do. But they're also aimed at people like you. In fact, they're aimed at anyone who decides to follow Jesus. So get ready for this because if we ever just did this part, if we ever got this in our hearts, this would move the needle culturally. It would stun our community, maybe change your family. So to all you strivers out there, you know, just, you know, and to all you marketplace leaders, um, to those of you who are state and local, maybe even national leaders or politicians, you got power. Yes, you do. You got power. How about you? Jesus would say, you know, you ready for this? This is amazing. Okay, set it up again. Guys, you know how the power thing works. You know how the resource things work. You know, you know, you know, how, it, you know how the whole pyramid thing works. Look up here. And they're like, we know. Not so with you. Not in my kingdom, not in my ecclesia, not in my movement. You're gonna be part of my movement? Then you leverage your power and your resources and your family connections and your success and anything you got going for you. You're constantly looking for a way to leverage it for the benefit of other people. You don't hoard it for yourself. Not so with you, not so among you. You wanna be great? James and John, come on. You guys wanted to be great, right? They're like... Oh, yeah, yeah, we like to be great. You, all of you guys want to be great? Yeah, we, we want to be great. Jesus says, well, I think wanting to be great is a great thing. Let me tell you how to be great in my kingdom. You know how to be great in the kingdoms of this world. It's the very kingdoms that I discarded and said no to at the beginning. You remember just a week or a week and a half ago, the crowd wanted to make me their king. You saw me walk away from that offer because my kingdom's different. And the kingdom people who follow me live a different kind of life. And it's not a matter of, you know, false humility. It's not a matter of, well, I just need to never own anything or have. He says, no, it's all about whatever comes to you. You have to decide what to do with whatever comes to you. And in my kingdom, it looks and it acts different. 
Whoever, he says, whoever wants to become great among you, James and John, right? They're like, yeah, you want to be great. That's great to want to be great. Whoever wants to be great among you, you got to become the servant. Back of the line. Wait your turn. You may not even get a turn. Wait till everybody else is served. Wait till everybody else is seated. Wait until everybody else has what they need first. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. This was, again, this is such strong terminology. Imagine they're sitting there listening to their rabbi who just a few days earlier had raised Lazarus from the dead. You don't say, nah, I don't think so. You just, you just listen quietly and feel the weight of this and the embarrassment of this because this is how he lived. This is how he treated them. This is the way of the cross. This is invitation to you and to me and to the world to choose because it's always a choice. And every single day I'm tempted to say no to the temptation, to say no to the, this opportunity, to say no to the invitation. It's the way of the servant and it's a choice. We get to choose. We can choose not to be great in the here and now kingdom of God, or we can choose to be great in the here and now kingdom of God. We can continue competing for greatness in the fading kingdom of mortals, right? Competing for what can't be kept, competing for what fades and ages and eventually passes away. You know, moth and rust, says Jesus, Feathers and dust, says, anybody know? Proximo? Nobody knew who that was. Okay, anyway, so we, you will later. So we can continue chasing the wind as we talked about, feeling great about ourselves one day, feeling bad about ourselves the next day, feeling great about ourselves one day, feeling bad about ourselves the next day, feeling great then hating ourselves the next day, comparing and trying to win, comparing, coveting, lusting. This is kind of a dumb question. Is that how you wanna live your life? Is that how I wanna live my life? Is that what I want to look back on? Jesus says, no. There's better. You're invited to better. You can live better. It's the way of Jesus. It's the way of the cross. The cross says no. And this is what they're stuck on. I promise you, they're stuck on. Servant? Because they actually, everybody kind of had servants. I mean, the class system was so stratified. Slave? Okay, Jesus, that's not what we signed up for. We signed up for glory. We signed up for fame. We signed up for King David. And we signed up for King Solomon, the glory years of our nation, fortune and fame. Then Jesus pauses, I think, and he moves close. And he delivers the line that took their excuses away. And he delivers the line that takes my excuses away. He delivers the line, if you claim to be a Christian or a Jesus follower, that takes all of your excuses away, that should take our breath away, that certainly should take our entitlement and our arrogance away. It's the statement that should move me out of the way because this is the way of Jesus. This defined the way of Jesus. And here it is, you ready? This is the line that is so clarifying that if this went from here to here to here to here, changes everything. He's like, guys, you know how it works in the real world? Yeah. You know how the power all goes up, the cling to the, yeah, we know all that. Not so in my kingdom. All right, not so in your kingdom. For even 
the son of man, talking about himself. And he lifts the title from the Old Testament book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel, talked about the son of man. This was Daniel's description of the one that God would send to deliver the world, God's final king, God's Messiah. And Jesus now takes this on as his title. He's used it multiple times throughout the gospels. He's like, for even the son of man did not come to be served. You guys wanna be served. Look at me and say, I am your king. Not even I required people to serve me. What, what kind of king is that? Who, who would even wanna be that kind of king? But imagine a kingdom or a community or a family or imagine a nation that took their cue from that kind of king. For even the son of man, he's pointing at himself, didn't come to be served. But to serve, they think, whoa, wait, 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 wait. That, okay, wait, wait. It's one thing to be a king that doesn't require people to serve the king. It's another thing altogether when the king decides to flip the script and serve those who are his subjects. But he wasn't through. Maybe at this point, he turns and he faces Jerusalem. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. He faces Jerusalem and says, and to give his life because it was his choice. Nobody took his life from him. He marched to Jerusalem to give it away. Now, I just wanna say something about this real cool. We'll come back. And again, I don't know what this looks like in your life. So if you're like, Andy, be more specific. I don't know how to be more specific. Do you know why you should look for opportunities to give your life away? Because your opportunity to give your life away is slipping away. Because one day your life will be taken from you. And on that day, your opportunity, my opportunity to freely give our lives away comes to an end. Our time is running out. If you're 20 or if you're 60 or if you're 80, our time or opportunity is running out to mimic and to follow Jesus by giving our lives away. The reason we should look for opportunities to give it away is because the opportunity to give it away is slipping away and one day it ends. This is the way of the cross. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. He looks to Jerusalem and to give his life away as a ransom for many. And they're like, quiet. Then he says, okay, let's go. Get back up, get back on the road, join the crowd. They've fallen way behind. We are so in the back of the line now. Thank you very much. They're on their way to Jerusalem and they still didn't understand. But they were about to witness. Imagine this. They're about to witness what John the Baptist predicted when John the Baptist came on the scene and Jesus walks down to the valley where John the Baptist is baptizing in the Jordan River and he stops what he's doing and he looks up and he says, behold, look, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. They are about to witness that. They're about to become witnesses of the greatest event that ever happened, the salvation of the world, the ultimate serve, the, the moment that would define Christianity, the, the moment that would define 
our faith, the moment that would define what it means and what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so the cross became the icon of our faith because the folks who were there understood that it represented the template, the paradigm or the the pattern for our faith because it's the ultimate loss. It's the ultimate shame. It's the ultimate back of the line. And after the resurrection, they're like, we get it. We got it. And they lived their lives that way. And and it multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. It's why we're here. We're not here because Christians got their way. We're here because first and second century Christians gave their lives away. That's why the gospel endured the might of Rome. It's a standing invitation. It's an empowering invitation. It's an invitation to participate in the kingdom of God right now in your family, in the marketplace, as soon as we leave, every single day. And every day we're gonna be tempted not to accept the invitation because it's so countercultural and so counter-natural. But imagine if we said yes. Imagine if we led our families that way. Imagine if we worked that way, served our employers that way. Imagine if we led in the marketplace that way. Imagine if we reacted that way. It's risky and it's foolish, at least we think so now, but in the end, we won't think that way. Because the power of God, the love of God, the kingdom of God is released and recognized in us and through us in the real world when we say yes to the invitation of the cross. So what if we said yes? Or what if we tried to say yes? What if we, like we said last week, what if we chased humility? What if we said yes at home and at work and at school with our friends? What if we we decided to chase humility with our enemies? What if we refused to reduce the cross to simply a way of believing and really embraced it? based on the pattern and the teaching of Jesus as a way of living our lives. This is what Jesus invites us to do, to defer, to give, to forgive, to serve, to choose, to lose, again, to chase humility. And then I'm done. When we think it's too much, you're asking too much, it's too high. You know, you're asking me to go too low. This is when it should reverberate in our minds. It's why you should memorize this statement. It's why I think it's just the most amazing thing that came from the lips of Jesus. In those moments where you're asking too much, I've already given, I've already served, I've already apologized, I've already let them take the credit. I've I've gone about as low as I know how to go. I don't know that I can go any further. Jesus smiles and he looks at you. He says, yeah, I, I know, thank you. But just remember this. For even your savior, the one who after the resurrection, I, again, we just, it just doesn't get enough airplay. The one who stands on a mountain after his resurrection and says, hey, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. The same one who stood in that upper room while they're serving Passover and realized, oh my goodness, all authority belongs to me. I'm the most important person in the room. I'm the most powerful person in the room. Even that man, even the son of man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And you are part of the many. So why not accept his invitation to live as part of his kingdom?
And if we do, if we figure it out, if we decide it's not too hard, it's not too low, if we decide even if we get it wrong, we're gonna keep trying, if we decide to keep it front and center, things will change. But the change starts here. But when it's real change, it will be evident out there. You are part of the many. So why not accept his invitation to participate in his kingdom? Heavenly Father, it's easy to talk about this audience and all of our churches and people watching online all over the world, we represent so many circumstances, so many extenuating circumstances, so many difficult circumstances, difficult marriages, difficult financial situations, difficult work situations, difficult unemployment situations, prodigal children, prodigal parents, whatever it is, Father. And, and the thought of serving, the thought of going low, the thought of embracing this is, it's, well, it just seems crazy. It just seems foolish. Of course it does. But would you give us eyes to see each one of us? What would that look like in my life now? And would you remind us that we really don't have any excuse for even the son of man, even our king, even our savior? He didn't even come to be served, to get his fair share, to get his credit, but to serve, to give his life away. Father, give me, start with me, give us the courage to give more of our lives away because our time and our opportunity is running out. So wherever this lands with us, give us the courage to embrace it. Give us the courage to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.